So thanks so much for joining us, Marty. This is really exciting. I know we're here to talk about um, some really big news that WeGo has recently, but I wonder if you could, before we dive into that um, exciting new grant, if you could tell us what WeGo stands for and what WeGo's mission is. Thank you so much, Carlin. I'd be happy to. WeGo, the name, the acronym, is for a large cumbersome name, which is Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing. And the founders of WeGo coined that phrase because it captured what we were seeking to highlight and to address. And what WeGo is, is a global action research policy network that seeks to empower the working poor in the informal economy, especially women, to uh, secure stronger livelihoods, better incomes by changing the policy and legal environment. And we believe that this can be done through what we call the three Vs. One is increasing the voice of informal workers through organization and representation. The second is visibility. And that is visibility in official statistics and official policymaking circles with informed understanding. And the third is for the sake of a third V, validity, which is that these workers should be seen as valid economic agents. They should be valued for their contributions rather than stigmatized and penalized as they tend to be. And we seek to do that through five programs, two fundamental programs, the pillars, if you will, on voice and visibility is a program called organization and representation, where we find and strengthen and link up organizations of informal workers into sector specific networks. The second is our statistics program, a dedicated statistics program, which is dedicated to improving official statistics on the labor force and on economic phenomena. And we work with the ILO and the UN Statistics Division and national statistical offices on that. And then we have three programs on policy areas that need to be reframed, re rethought <laughs> through the lens of the working poor in the informal economy. One is on social protection, one is on urban policies, and one is on law. And these programs working together generate knowledge. <laughs> they build the capacity of the worker organizations to do advocacy and they open spaces to engage in policy advocacy at the local level all the way to the global level. Well, there's so many things I'd like to hear more about there, Marty, but before we dive more into we dive more deeper into WeGo, I wonder if you could take me back to your own journey. I know WeGo has been a really pioneering organization in its own rights. How did you come to the idea of founding this network? The journey begins 
in my childhood, I would say I grew up in India. I was a member of a third generation of a missionary family that lived in India and worked in India from 1916 when my paternal grandparents arrived there. And I grew up with informal workers. I grew up with, to use the South Asian terms, I grew up with ayas and dobies and malis and dudwalas, all the people who provided the goods and services that middle-class people needed were all informal. And many of these um, in our lives became members of the family as the, do the dobi up in the mountains that we still see because we have a family home there. He said, we ate salt from each other's tables. We are one family. So I grew up with uh, informal workers. And then I managed <laughs> to get my public, my medical doctor and then public health husband to South Asia. And we lived in what was East Pakistan, then Bangladesh for most of the seventies. And we lived in New Delhi for most of the eighties. And in Bangladesh, I, was working with this remarkable NGO called BRAC, and I helped start and lead its women's program during the 1970s. And so when I was asked to be Oxfam America's rep in India, I just expanded and built on that work in Bangladesh and had a portfolio of grants for women's economic empowerment um, and at that time, I began to work very closely with SEWA, the Self-Employed Women's Association. Um, and then we came to Harvard in 1987, and I brought with me this grounded knowledge and experience of the informal economy and began to put it into more academic frameworks. But I was quite taken aback, frankly, that the mainstream economists saw the informal economy as somehow problematic, as either too fuzzy or too messy to be meaningful, or more so they saw it as uh, non-compliant, non-productive, illegal, black. And so I determined that there had to be an alternative narrative because from my perspective and experience in a region where 90% of all workers are informal, that that other perspective of the mainstream economists really obtained only to a very small part of the informal economy. And most of the informal economy was working poor people trying to earn an honest living in a very hostile legal and policy environment, in large part because of those negative stereotypes. And I partnered in the 1990s, early 1990s with Sewa in India, Rainana Jabwala in particular, and with um, what was called UNIFEM at the time, is now UN Women, in the person of Marilyn Carr on a project to document 
the struggles and campaigns of informal worker organizations in South Asia. It resulted in a book called Speaking Out, but it was a documentation of these organizations and their struggles in South Asia. And in the process, we had a proposal into the UN to do something about the informal economy. And there was very little pickup. So what we did, what I did really was um, apply to the Rockefeller Center at Bellagio for what they then called a team retreat. And we brought together 10 people who had worked on the informal economy, each separately, sometimes together for many years, probably a collective 200 years. And we met to discuss how to address um, the stereotypes that were so negative and to build on and recognize the fledgling organizations of workers. And I should say a precipitating event before the Bellagio retreat was that I was asked by SEWA to produce data on home-based workers around the world for their campaign for a ILO convention on home-based work. And I worked with uh, two colleagues, one a student at the Kennedy School, and we generated what we could of data from ad hoc surveys and they used that in the campaign and it was determined that the joint action of organizations of workers and people who did research and statistics and organizations like UNIFEM, which hosted a conference of policymakers in Asia, also part of the campaign, was really the way to go. And as Ila Bhatt, the founder of SEWA put it, statistics in the hands of workers is power. So that was really the precipitating final event that led us to the Bellagio retreat at which we planned what is now WeGo. We thought it would be a project. We had no idea that it would grow into a global movement. Pretty amazing journey, Marty. And I'm curious, you know, you, you talk about the informal workers that you grew up with, and obviously WeGo works with you know, home-based workers, waste pickers, street vendors, um, domestic workers. And I'm wondering if you could, you've met so many informal workers across the globe in this time. Could you tell us a story about a, an informal worker or group that really helped bring to life some of the issues and the challenges that informal workers face? Is there a story that you remember from your time that you think would help illustrate, you know, the real challenges on the ground? There are so many stories and they all speak to the resilience of the workers. But I'll choose one from Latin America because <laughs> everyone will assume I choose one from South Asia. And this was in Bogota, Colombia, 2008. And WeGo and others had were hosting the first ever international conference of waste pickers. And I had lunch with 
the co-leader of the Association of Recicladores of Bogota, uh, Silvio, in, during the conference. And I asked him his life story. And briefly, here's what he told me. He and his family were from the plateau in Colombia. There had been an epidemic. And so his parents moved to Bogota with him and his sister. He was about 13 to avoid the epidemic. And when they arrived shortly after, his father abandoned his mother and himself and his sister. So he dropped out of school and started panning for metal to resell. He would be down where the sewage would come out of the city into probably the river, and he would pan to find metal coins and bits of metal that he could sell. And he graduated from doing that to working on a landfill with other waste pickers where they are experts at reclaiming from landfills and open dump sites, the recyclable waste that has value in the market. And he worked for some time alongside his fellow workers and began to organize them. And what they did was they collected all the glass that they had reclaimed in a bundle or a heap <laughs> to the side of this landfill. And when they had enough glass to make it worth their while, they hired a truck and they loaded the glass on the truck. They put a mattress on top for them to sit on and they had the truck driver take them to Medellin, Medellin, where there were the glass factories and they sold this glass that they had accumulated. And it was the first time that they realized they could operate in the market. Um, and this led to him and his equally remarkable wife, Nora, who's a third generation waste picker to form um, this Association of Recicladores de Bogota and be part of the National Alliance of Waste Pickers in that country. And there's much to follow. I mean, they have now got over 40 cities in Colombia paying waste pickers for their collection and recycling services. But there's that's a 25 year history that I can't go into now. And so some of the main challenges that you would say that, wait, that informal workers face, I mean, what are some of the top challenges that they face on a global scale? What, would, or what are some of the common themes that you hear? Well, I can turn it into what their core demands are because we hear from them what their core demands are. And the first core demand is for recognition. It's for that validity that I talked about for recognition that they are legitimate economic players contributing to their societies, contributing to the economy, contributing to the formal economy because they provide goods and services. And in the case of waste pickers particularly, they contribute to reducing carbon emissions by reclaiming waste from landfills and dump sites and streets and households. Um, so that recognition and the dignity that comes with that, that's so fundamental to them because um, they are treated so much as undesirables in their 
in the, by the elite public and the policymakers. A second core demand is for some kind of social protection because by definition, they don't get it through their work. And this is not just social assistance and small amounts of cash uh, transfers, but also more fundamentally social insurance so that for their health insurance and their pensions in old age. They also want their organizations to be recognized and have a seat at the policy table because they're excluded from any rule setting policy making processes. But then the situation begins to differ by the different groups. So you could broadly divide them between those who work in public spaces and those who work in private homes. So the ones primarily in public spaces that we work with are the street vendors and the waste pickers. And the street vendors, of course, they want a secure location to vend, probably in a public space near the flow of customers. So not please in the periphery of the cities, but centrally to the central business district. And the waste pickers also want their routes for collecting and also their sorting sites, um, you know, recognized. And for the two groups that work in private homes, one are the domestic workers and there their issue is mainly with the employer and the hiring contract <laughs> that they have. And for home-based producers, and I should hasten to add that in South Asia, you know, around one third of all women workers are home-based. In India, one third of all manufacturing units are home-based. So people who work, produce goods and services from their own homes need some kind of secure tenure for their homes they need the basic infrastructure for their homes, services, water and sanitation and electricity to make their homes viable workplaces. And they have to deal with the market <laughs> if they're self-employed and they have to deal with the contractors if they're subcontracted. So they have a range of issues depending who they are, where they work, what goods and, and services they produce. So a great deal of WIGO's work is to get the statistics on the different groups, but also to generate knowledge about the particular constraints and risks that the different groups uh, face. And a, but a primary demand overall is please do no harm. <laughs> you know, there's so much talk in policy circles about job creation. And meanwhile, we are destroying livelihoods because we are doing harm. Cities are doing harm, governments are doing harm. So the first request is please do no harm. And this is particularly poignant during COVID because we have done a longitudinal study in 12 cities around the world. And we know <laughs> like the ILO had predicted that around 80% of the informal workforce, which is um, there are 2 billion of them worldwide. So 1.6 billion estimated had their livelihoods uh, come to a screeching halt often uh, with the lockdowns. And in the relief era <laughs> response, um, 
there was response, but it tended to be for one or two months, some food aid, some cash aid, not a lot. And then it was sort of like government fatigue with relief. But the crisis has continued into 2021. And so the ability to work is slightly greater, but the earning levels are still very low and the relief fatigue has set in. And I should hasten to add that while they were seen as targets for relief, they are not part of the economic recovery plans. The economic recovery plans start at small and medium and large enterprises going up. And most of these workers are in single person operations or small family units. And I could say almost all recovery plans exclude them, right? So they're not part, and yet we're convinced that you have to build back the economy from the base to have a robust recovery and to, re and to get back on the path to reducing poverty and inequality because both poverty and inequality have just been greatly expanded during the COVID crisis. Yeah, this is so interesting, Marty, because you know one of the lines that I read in one of the articles about we go recently was that you know the informal economy is the economy in most uh, a lot of these global south countries so how does this happen that they don't get included in recovery plans when there's you know 90% of the whole economy is the informal economy it's a good question. It's it's central to what we've been trying to do for 25 years. WeGo is now 25 years old or will be in April of next year. And it's a puzzle to me that when you look at the majority of workers, the majority of enterprises, the majority of economic activity everywhere except the developed countries um, are so excluded from economic plans and economic, um, well now economic recovery, and at best are treated with some labor protections or some, or uh, there's a growing movement for universal, you know, social protection, but on the economic side of the equation, hardly there at all. And I think it's because of this mainstream notion in economics that they are a problem. And originally they thought it would go away with industrial development, which of course it hasn't. And modern capitalism is generating more informal employment, not less. Um, and the other assumption was that it's a drag on the economy. And there's also a related orthodoxy that if you do things for them, it create, creates a perverse incentive for them to be informal. Uh, and my retort is what is more perverse? <laughs> that you leave out 90% of your workers and enterprises and activities from social, social and legal protections and from your economic plans and policies, or you create a perverse incentive for a few to remain informal. Um, and so that's been a huge challenge for us. It's a mindset problem that people see them in this particular way and don't see them 
Um, there was a recent publication by the World Bank that talked about informality. They never talked informal economy. They never said informal workers. They never said informality and the correlation between informality and bad governance, informality and COVID impact. And they went so far as not just talk about the correlation, but they essentially made a causation set of statements that informality <laughs> is the cause of all these bad things. Um, and so we, we've made progress in certain mindsets and thinking, but we have a long ways to go. But I would say what's really encouraging is that in 2018, we had the first ever global estimates of informality. That's 25 years of work uh, between the WIGO statistics program and the ILO statistics department and UN stats and national government, you name it. We then had two years later for the first time with the first global crisis, we had a recognition that the informal economy was worse hit. All previous recessions, it was assumed that the informal economy provided a cushion to fall back on. And the cushion was for formal workers who lost their jobs could find work in the informal economy. But nobody was asking what happened to the informal workers. And we, we did a, two, a longitudinal study with the global recession 2008 to 10 also on this saying there is no cushion for the informal workers to fall back on. This crisis, there's recognition of that. And we do have um, some ILO conventions and standards. We have mentioned in the UN, um, the new urban agenda of UN Habitat. So there've been, there's been a lot of progress made um, in sort of mainstreaming an alternative view of the informal economy, but we still have a ways to go. Yeah, and, and thank you for painting that picture of the real crisis that ensued with the pandemic, whereas you know you and I could switch to doing Zoom calls and working from home, but for many people in the, or most of the informal economy, it really came to a screeching halt. And you know that brings me to the exciting news, which is that, the, that WeGo received a recent grant from the Ford Foundation for a very large and nice $25 million to support this equitable economic recovery. Could you tell us a little bit about what that means to you at WeGo, an equitable economic recovery from the pandemic? Well, yes. And first, I want to say that to thank Ford Foundation because they have been a core funder of WeGo from the beginning. And we have had, we've relied on them and a couple of other key core funders to uh, be able to grow, not just the organization of WeGo, but this network. And the grant is for the network. It's for the social, the global movement of informal workers. So it will be divided between um, four large sector networks of informal workers, domestic workers, street vendors, uh, home-based workers and waste pickers. And it will also include money for WeGo to continue to do what we've been doing, which is helping with capacity building for advocacy, helping with um, communications, helping um, coordinate sort of a global movement campaign for 
uh, just recovery from below. And so for us, the building back better to use the slogan needs to start with the base of the economy, not the tip of the economy. And I hasten to add that during COVID, the, sorry, the shareholder capitalism has done very well. But the base of the economy, these working poor people have, are in a deep hole because they lived off their daily earnings, those that work and those earnings stopped. And they have gone deeper into debt. They've depleted their savings and in many cases have pawned or sold productive assets. So they have gone deep into a hole um, and are still struggling to put food on the table while shareholder capitalism has done very well. And so we need to start at the base. We need to start and rebuild where the majority of workers, the majority of enterprises, and the majority of economic activities are. And to build on the recognition that did come with COVID. Um, there were two recognitions. One is that the basic needs that all of us rely on, and now we have the the breakdown of the supply chains. We're all very conscious of you know, the basic uh, needs and also some of the consumer luxury items that we all feel are important. We've, we've come to realize the importance of those in our lives and the importance of people who provide essential goods and services. I mean, notably starting with the health workers um, who have gone beyond the call of duty and many of whom, not the doctors and nurses necessarily, but many of the other medical people are informally employed. Um, you know, most of our people who run the ambulances and the paramedics who are on the ambulances, they don't get health insurance. They're paid very little. Uh, so we know that the provision of essential goods and services, the production of food, the processing of food, the delivery of food, the last mile delivery of food by street vendors is all informal workers. So we've, you know, we've banged pots and pans and we've clapped and we've sung for the essential workers during the, the lockdowns and restrictions, but are we going to build them into the recovery? That's the challenge. And so long as we treat the informal as sort of a social policy problem, and not an economic policy opportunity, we will not have a robust recovery. We will not reduce poverty and inequality. You know, it's so interesting hearing you talk about this, Marty, from your own journey to WeGo to some of the major issues that you're taking on here in the world, which is this vast inequality. I'm just curious on a personal level, what drives you and motivates you to keep going with this for, for decades, really committing to this work? What are some of your own personal um, drive and aspirations and hopes here for this? Well, what drives me is, is the people themselves, the informal workers that I've met around the world. Um, 
I am an anthropologist by training. So the way I learn, the way I do inductive theory building is by going and sitting on mud floors, if you will. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I've done all my long career, beginning in Bangladesh in the 1970s. And so it's the people, their resilience, their, their charisma, <laughs> the uh, struggles that they have fought, their determination to keep going against all odds. Um, that's definitely what drives me. It's how I learn and how I think. Um, along the way with the WeGo Network, uh, all of us <laughs> in the WeGo Network are committed <laughs> activists. Many of us are activist academics, others are activist lawyers, others are activist organizers. Um, but being part of a family of committed activists of different skills and talents and backgrounds has also been very inspiring and how we've all come together around the cause and have developed technical capacity in a whole range of areas to build the knowledge and do the policy analysis and the policy advocacy that's needed and doing it all the time with the organizations of workers. And so the organizations are also inspiring. They, I mean, I've been in on the beginning of some of them and seen them go from strength to strength. I've, I've been with them when they were small and struggling and they're now on the global stage. Um, that's why it was particularly uh, deeply heartfelt and moving to see the leaders of these networks featured in Time Magazine, uh, thanks to the Ford Foundation communications team who did this um, three really significant media pieces around the, um, the grant to the networks and to WeGo. Actually, that makes me think also, I'm thinking about your journey, Marty. Has there been differences in over the decades do you see in what you see as informal workers and who they are and their struggles or I mean what's what are over the last 20 years have you seen any significant differences in who an informal worker is or what their struggles are? Well if we start with the four groups that WeGo has dedicated itself to the domestic workers, the home-based producers, the street vendors and waste pickers. At one level, their lives are, and who they are and who joins those sectors is still very much the same. Um, but there are new forms of informality or informal work that are also emerging. Even within those sectors, there are digital platforms for contracting their goods and their services that they are trying to struggle with because sometimes the platforms help and sometimes they hinder. Um, and there are new categories of platform workers, of gig workers who are mainly informal. The, the definition of informal being that these are workers whose enterprises are small or unregistered, or their employment arrangement, um, they do not get any contributions from employers 
to their social protection. So you think of the Uber drivers, you think of any of these, and they are actually informal. So modern capitalism is generating modern forms of informality, which go alongside the traditional historic forms. So the historic form of a subcontracted, dependent contracted worker are the industrial outworkers who work in the global supply chains forever. And the new form is those who work for the digital platforms. So we're seeing it in new guises and, and but the traditional categories, especially in the global South are still out there still struggling. And um, we have pockets of victories, but we have hope that we can have more widespread victories for them. And this is a critical moment for the workers because with the COVID moment, it is an inflection moment. The world has, the global community has to decide whether we're going to revert to the old bad deal for informal workers where they were stigmatized and penalized. Or, and there's a strong likelihood of this, that we go back to a worse normal because in the name of public health, in the name of economic recovery, governments around the world are destroying the physical infrastructure of street vendor markets or waste picker sorting sites. They're closing dump sites where informal waste pickers work. They are trying to get rules and regulations for factories to have fewer shifts so that they don't have so many workers coming through public health. In the name of public health and economic recovery, governments are doing what they long wanted to do, which is to destroy the informal economy. So you take the city of Dakar in Senegal. There was a large African market, much celebrated, where many people worked and many people went to buy uh, goods. And it was in a central location that the government wanted to build a mall. So they used COVID as an excuse to completely destroy the market in order to buy a mall. Now, the, a mall and an open market cater to completely different interests. Um, and it's real estate and elite customers on one side. And it's, you know, it's the poor middle-class and working poor customers and the informal traders on the other side. And this is a clear um, moment to make a, dis a choice. It's a moral choice. Who are we supporting um, in our cities? What vision of cities do we have? Um, is it Shanghai where you can't find informal workers? They are there, but you can't see them. Or is it Hanoi where they're still cheek and jowl just operating side by side? Or Mumbai, a city you know well and I know well, where it's they operate side by side and um, with a fair amount of tension, but at least it's, it's the formal and informal sharing spaces at different times of the day operating sort of organically together. Well, well, that's interesting, an interesting framing of this moment. So it will be interesting to watch and people should follow WeGo to, to see 
more of the research that comes out of this, this moment in time and some of the work that the organizations will now do on the ground um, in, at this moment. And Marty, just one last question. Obviously, we're the Mitchell Institute here at Harvard, and I know that there is a long history of WeGo at Harvard and many connections. Would you just like to elaborate on, on WeGo's connection with Harvard? Thank you, yes. Um, and I also want to express my gratitude to the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, when I came to the Harvard Kennedy School in 1987, um, I was leaving, as I mentioned, these two decades of work in Bangladesh and India on the informal economy. I did start from the Harvard Kennedy School, um, a cross Boston webinar, well, sorry, not webinar, seminar, we were in person uh, on the informal economy with, um, with economists and others from Boston University, MIT, Harvard, and I was able to do the research that I continued to do on the informal economy. And once WeGo was founded a decade later, which was 1997, I was connected with the Hauser Center for Non-Governmental at the Kennedy School. And I was allowed to sort of have a build a secretariat, sort of incubate WeGo, if you will, um, at the Harvard Center. Um, for non-governmental organizations. And so we did have uh, the WeGo Secretariat at Harvard for two decades, as long as I was the international coordinator. Uh, when I handed over to my successor in uh, beginning of 2018, um, we closed the secretariat, but I still am at the Harvard Kennedy School and I'm still a full-time paid senior advisor to WeGo. And so it's been very important to us to um, have a base at Harvard and we are grateful to the Kennedy School for that. And, um, and it has allowed me also to teach about the informal economy. Um, and I have done so both through my own course at the Kennedy School, but also through a joint course or actually two joint courses that I have taught with um, Rahul Merotra, who is also from the Middle Institute cabinet um, at the Graduate School of Design. And our second course, the two of us co-teach with Bish Sanyal from MIT's Urban Studies and Planning Department. So I've been able to teach on the topic uh, while at Harvard. So all of that has been hugely important um, to WeGo and for that, I'm very grateful. And, and some founders also involved with uh, Harvard also. Well, the founders of WeGo, um, one of them, <laughs> Reynana Jhabvala, uh, was a student. She is a, did her bachelor's at Harvard College. And the other co-founder from Sewa was Ila Butt or is Ila Butt who got an honorary degree from Harvard um, in, I, would, I can't quite remember, but she did get an honorary degree from Harvard. And I should say that one of the other top leaders of SEWA, the Self-Employed Women's Association of India is a Harvard College graduate as well, Mirai Chatterjee. 
So this remarkable trade union of two mil going on two million women informal workers in India among its top leadership have two Harvard College graduates and the founder got an honorary degree from Harvard. So strong connections. Lots of nice connections there. Well, thank you, Marty. This has been so fascinating to hear so much of your own thinking about the informal economy, its resonance in this really important moment in time today, and just really interesting to hear your own personal journey and background too. So thanks for sharing everything, Marty. Thank you, Carlin.